HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Today's program has been brought to you by White Oak Pastures, a five-generation Georgia-based beef and poultry farm determined to conduct business in an honorable manner. For more information, visit whiteoakpastures.com. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network, broadcasting live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. If you like this program, visit heritageradionetwork.org for thousands more. Welcome to the Food Scene on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. I'm your host, Michael Harlan Turkel, here today with a whole bunch of people, all representing <laughs> the power of the Food Book Fair. But first and foremost, Elizabeth Thacker-Jones, the woman behind the fest itself. Thank you again. 2013 is upon us, a couple days away. Yeah, thank you so much for having us. And it only makes sense to kind of start this year with a little bit of coffee, an eye-opener. And we have two amazing guests with us today. Lars Hughes. <laughs> I tried to do the inflection a little bit. Yeah. And uh, Oliver Strand, who, awesomely enough, are leading a coffee crawl. When is that? On Friday from 2 to 4? Yeah, on Friday afternoon. Excellent. Well, I'm going to let Elizabeth kind of take the mic and maybe even ask some questions here, too, uh, as to, you know, why coffee crawl? Why is that so important? And how does it connect into the larger scope of the food book fair? Sure. Well, the the coffee crawl itself developed in a sort of um, organic sense in that, uh, well, you know, someone mentioned it to me as an idea. Um, and it's not something I think that we we think, you know, oh, what, what are we going to do today? We're going to go try like 20 different kinds of coffee. Yeah. Um, whereas you have like the beer crawl and you have... Um, pizza crawls and um, probably some other really unique crawls out there that um, <laughs> that um, we're only bound to find out about um, soon enough. But I think there's this interest in coffee, especially um, in sort of urban centers. And there's a developing urban center in Williamsburg um, with 
a, you know, really, really good high quality coffee in a, a small, um, a small area. So, uh, Charlotte Druckmann actually, um, mentioned the idea of the coffee crawl and how Oliver Strand has to do a coffee crawl at the food book fair. She was very adamant. Yeah. She's kind of a connector. She's yeah. very good at <laughs> Yes. Yeah. Yes. And I, I, you know, this is something she, I really want to actually credit her for, for having this idea because, um, she planted the seed and I, I wrote to Oliver, just sort of Googled his, his email, I think, um, and didn't hear back and thought, well, that was a silly idea. There's so, there are so many crawls out there. <laughs> we don't, we don't need another crawl. Um, and then, um, Oliver then I think wrote to me and said, Charlotte mentioned this thing. And, <laughs> um, is this, you know, is it's this Elizabeth felicity. of the food book fair? And, and then, uh, I don't know. 800 emails later <laughs> um <laughs> we came up with a plan yeah, yeah. <laughs> when charlotte told me what to do i just do it you know she said you should get in touch and, <laughs> and throw this i i will defend the coffee nerds out there like it could be that beer crawls are, are a little more have a little more traction in in the world but if you're a coffee kid uh you you do a coffee crawl when you show up in a town is what you do. So it's like you go to London and you hit as many places as your body can handle. Yes. Uh, and it's just kind of a coffee thing. Or like when you're in Oslo, you go to all the coffee pots spots, which is like six. You do that on one day, though. Yeah. <laughs> you, think, yeah you could do it on one day, you know, with Jim one tram Brady. line. Um, well, let's give you guys some accreditation here, yeah. too, because, uh, Oliver, I read your you know section in New York Times for Stretto for a long, long time. And I myself am not a coffee drinker, and that actually woke me up. Um, it just was so nice. engaging and uh, enlightening for this burgeoning scene. And then Lars is uh, all the way here from Oslo, from Norway, uh, and writes the and illustrates the wonderful blog. What is it? Illustration and coffee. Illustration and coffee. Yeah. And but why? I mean, why this single subject for the both of you? What what, what is the fascination, and how is there so much information to convey? Gosh, uh, coffee kind of chose me. Um, I write about food, and I've been writing about food for a while, uh, and coffee was one of the many topics I wrote about, and it just moved the needles in a way that no other topic ever has. Uh, people were so engaged um, after my first article came out, uh, and I was really interested to see that, and I was interested to see two things. One, people don't know a lot about coffee. There's probably the widest gap between what's going on in the industry and what the public's understanding of that industry is. You know, of all of all of the uh, of all of the, the gustatory pursuits. So, you don't have to know a lot about wine to say, like, you know, I'm into this wine and it's uh, aged in steel tanks or it's a natural wine. You can kind of understand that, but you can know a lot about coffee. You can drink coffee every day, and I could say, yeah, actually, that's not a natural process. It's a pulp natural. You have no idea what I'm talking about. So what's going on in the industry is really sophisticated, and what's going on in the public, the understanding that the public has is actually pretty unsophisticated. So when I wrote this article, um, I was shocked to see how many people wanted to know more about, about this topic. They didn't realize that it was that deep, and they actually wanted to know more. And as a writer, you can't ask for anything more. Like You want, you want to be able to geek out and have everybody stay with you every every step of the way uh and and in coffee it's just like the story hasn't really been told yet yeah or, or seen for that matter too because yeah. knowing about those processes and this is where lars comes into play too yeah you know even even though it it seems like that very dramatic sense of an illustrator sitting in a coffee shop doodling away you were doodling about what you were sitting in yeah but never 
with coffee. <laughs> it's more of a tea guy. It, it's it, it's the theme, not the medium. Yeah, right. You know? <laughs> well, right. I mean, you, you you can fuse those two things together someday. Yeah, yeah. well, you know, it's. Uh, I think for me, I try to, you know, a lot, basically the same that, that Oliver is doing, but only visually. Like I try to make specialty coffee a bit more accessible for, you know, the common person, I suppose. Yeah. yeah. Um, well, let's take those two words, specialty and common, because. There are these things that common coffee drinkers don't know about, mm-hmm. as you were stressing before. What are some of those things? Is it a process? Is it well, a, a kind of I, coffee? I, th- I think what's the most interesting, or for me what's most important, is that we look at perceptions and, you know, what is coffee? That's, uh, it, it seems like there's, you know, an established um, sort of terminology in terms of thinking about coffee, which is, you know, is it something comfortable, hot? black, brown, whatever, uh, in a cup, and coffee is so much more than that, and it's it's evolved so much, it's constantly developing, which is, that's what's really exciting, um, and I think that's that's really why, you know, we, we are into uh, coffee and combining it in, in, in that sort of way. Um, yeah. Well, well like, as arbiters of, you know, this yeah. subject... How would you help develop somebody's palate or understanding? Well, at, at the risk of sounding too uh, reductionist, reductivist, reductionist, um, I want for people to to drink coffee because of how it tastes, and that's actually uh, you might not realize it, but very few people do that. By that, I mean like you go into a restaurant. Like we just had a couple of pizzas here. We had three pizzas. So if if you want to go and look at it, we tasted three pizzas against each other. Most people don't wake up in the morning and have three coffees against each other. They'll have that one coffee. Um, they might have a second version of that same coffee. Uh, if they go out to a shop, they might do the same thing. They've got their one order. So when you're tasting coffee at home and then you go to a shop one day and you go to a different shop a third day, you, what you're relying on is taste memory. You're not actually tasting anything against another thing. When you have a meal, a normal meal, you're tasting three things, eight things, 12 things, 20 things, if it's an elaborate meal. If you're drinking, you know, you might have two or three beers against each other. You might have four or five different wines against each other. It's mind-blowing the first time you actually taste coffee for how it tastes, not to wake you up and not to remind you of, of uh, a flavor that you had the day before, a flavor that you want. Like, if you go out to get that cappuccino that you had last week, that's how m- most people go out to have a coffee, but they don't get a blended espresso versus a single-origin espresso and then go to the shop down the street to see what their blended espresso is like. So that's what you do in the crawl. I mean, it's as basic as that. I want for people to drink coffee for how it tastes and to taste different coffee because then you really learn how it tastes. Most people don't do that. In the industry, you do it all the time. Well, I mean, let's talk about that. What yeah. is a cupping and what you know? how do you go through tasting coffee in that sense? Well, yeah, so on the crawl, we're going to start off with a cupping, and it is a industry standard way to judge a coffee. So it's a very neutral way to prepare a coffee. And basically, you grind some beans, you put them in a little shallow bowl, um, you put in hot water, you, you smell the grounds, and then, and, then, and then you put in hot water, and then you smell that. And then you crack the little crust off the top, and you smell that. And then you wait a little bit until it cools, and then 
you put kind of a flat soup spoon in there and you slurp the coffee in the back of your throat. Oh, we're going to do an impromptu <laughs> cupping? I thought yeah. you had like some <laughs> fold out well, cupping. All this coffee yeah. Yeah. Well, and there's uh, there we go. So yeah, so so everybody at home, if you can see this spoon, <laughs> it's kind of a flat. Visualize it's a giant. spoon. Oh, here and and and, like and I'm going to go and make a cupping sound. I'm an okay cupper, but a, a lot of it is to make I, a noise. Have a competition. You can do it right. Oh, so I'm it's gonna, a cupping sound. It's pretty good, right? Yeah. yeah. Here you can oh, do. I'm doing. I like. I can't it, tell whether or not it's the Norwegian or. If it's, oh, there that's we much go. Better. There we go. And then there are people who, who whistle. So I have all kinds of audio of these cuppings where you just have this kind of pretty aggressive, kind of nasty sound, and it's all around you. But the idea is the preparation's neutral, so it's not going through a machine. It's not a Chemex. It's not anything like that. It's basically cowboy coffee. Um, and what you want to do is just kind of taste the coffee. So if you taste that, then you're really tasting that coffee naked. But what, what you get with the cupping as well uh, when you're slurping it is those retronasal aromas where you actually get all of, you know, uh, I don't want to get too deep into how oh, your palate works and taste and all that. But, you know, um, most uh, tastes are actually aromas. Um, yeah. And, you know, you, you could, if you just slurp your regular, you know, regular coffee and you know uh yeah, it's no kind of make thing. a sound when you drink your coffee and throw yeah. it in the back of your throat basically exactly. yeah yeah mm. yeah so 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 with the cupping that's that's kind of the industry standard way to go and taste coffee usually when when you're in a company like a roaster then you're tasting your own coffees and you're in a competition you're tasting one roaster's coffees against another roaster's coffees or one grower's coffees against another grower's coffees and when you when you have that experience, especially a big cupping, you might have twenty coffees, fifty coffees. It's not unusual. You might have a series of those over the course of the day. You might taste one hundred, one hundred twenty, one hundred fifty coffees. It's very clear what's good and what's bad. If you're just a consumer and you go to that shop around the corner, you don't necessarily know. You don't know what they're doing right, and you don't know what they're doing wrong. You really have to triangulate that with other places. So the idea of the crawl is to kind of let these people figure out. Hey, you know, I like this. I like what they're doing over here. I'm not that crazy about that. Or I never thought about what this other place is doing, and I kind of like that. See, you know what I find fascinating about coffee right now? Um, you know, Lars is coming in from Norway, and you're going to go on this journey cupping around Brooklyn. But the place where the beans are, you know, cultivated. Origin. Yeah, the origins yeah. aren't really coffee shop locales. Well, it's it's just beginning to maybe kind of yeah. change a little bit. What you can see, which yeah. is quite interesting, is with the recent um, World Barista Champions, yeah. uh, from uh, the, the last two ones have been from growing nations. Yeah. Oh, interesting. Uh, um, so Guatemala. It was Guatemala and uh, uh, Colombia. Colombia before yeah. that. Yeah. 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 And then like in Brazil, which is the number one producer of coffee in the world, it's also a growing economy. Um, so they're starting to consume good stuff there, and there are coffee shops in Sao Paulo that are fantastic. You know, coffee is a cash crop. It's a way for uh, a, a country to get currency into the country. So you always export your best stuff. You always do that. You know, so if you're getting coffee in Kenya, which grows some of the most beautiful coffee in the world, if you're buying coffee in Kenya like a cup of coffee, you're buying the worst of their crop because it's so much more important to the country to make money on the good stuff and get it out. So it's starting to change in Latin America as they're they're looking to hold on to their best stuff. That's incremental. But you know, coffee is is a colonial crop. It was taken around the world by European powers um, to their colonies as a way to you know make money. Um, that's the history and that's the heritage of it. And that it's starting to change now is actually extraordinary because this is the first time since really Ethiopia and Yemen that the countries that grow coffee um, are consuming it also. 
Can you give us a little sampling of this tour of who we might actually see? Yeah, well, I just, I was wondering, um, as Oliver was talking about his book, actually, if yes. you could. <laughs> oh, yeah, it is the Food Book Fair. Yeah, yeah, yeah well, this is kind of a book in progress. So, so the food... <laughs> The food manuscript fair, right? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, the food no, manuscript I mean, fair. Some, As you know, it, are, it is a place to... Yeah, some are in progress. Percolating, some per se. deals will happen. Yeah, yeah, that's <laughs> exciting for people. Yeah, so I'm writing a book. It's going to be published by HarperCollins. Um, I don't have a publication date. I am working on the manuscript. And I'm, I'm looking at coffee all around the world. So I spent some time in Norway, um, which is where I met Lars. He was a barista at the time, a fantastic coffee shop there. And Oslo has this reputation for having really good coffee, but it's also very polarizing. There are some people who think that, you know, it's actually not that special and other people who think it's really quite special. And and I went there to judge for myself, and it was unbelievable. The coffee in Oslo is unbelievable. It's it's not quite like anybody else's out there in the world. Um, and, and Lars has brought back uh, coffee from two roasters. Wait. Uh, oh, wait, you got some. I've got one, too, yeah. <laughs> um, so, so I, Which roasters? Uh, Kaffa, uh, which is extraordinary, and then Solberg and Hansen, which is this heritage roaster from the 1800s that's kind of reinvented itself, and it's doing beautiful work. And then I have some coffees from Tim Wendelbo. So, you know, not to play, like, the best-in-the-world game because that's not a fun game to play. These are all extraordinary, and as to which one is kind of you know ahead of the pack it's like what's going on that week and that day they're all so talented and they're all buying such beautiful ingredients and such beautiful product and handling it so well um it's going to be amazing so we're going to end with that we're going to end with a bunch of coffees from kaffa tim wendelbo and uh solberg and hansen which is just you know like he's bringing out the all-star team to go and kick around a ball That's awesome yeah and you can still get tickets online right yeah there are a couple of tickets left Fantastic. Yeah. yeah. And, you know, I, I want to ask Lars again, too, coming from this place that has, you know, that amazing Mag- trifecta of beans. Just, yeah. What are you excited about in Brooklyn, specifically? I have, it's been two years since I was last in New York City, so I'm, I'm just really looking forward to, you know, check out everything. Yeah. Uh, so many, you know, that's, that's what I love about the city as well. It's like the coffee scene is always changing. And... Uh, that's something I really love about London as well, which is, you know, it's been sort of my residence the past couple of years. But, um, yes, I love diversity. Yeah. So, well, I mean, let's talk about, you know, uh, even techniques or, you know, new terminology like flat white has only hit the but, Brooklyn right. scene but in the past year what is, or two. What is a flat white? That's, you know, that... Uh, I, I, it makes me a little bit upset. I don't. I don't know. It, it's, it's such a loose definition. It's, it could be. It could be anything. And it's. It's a. It's a. It's a cappuccino. It's a well, latte. Or it's. Yeah, you have a latte. You know, but you know. Yeah. Yeah. Are, it's, are it's, there new? There are two terms? terms for cortados as well, right? Well, well there's. Uh, yeah, there's there's a cortado and then there's a Gibraltar, which which was kind of birthed through Blue Bottle, you know, mm-hmm. and and the both of those are are a riff off of uh, the Cortado in Spain, but the milk is a little more steamed. It's a little more, as they say, textured. That's There's a technical term. You don't steam milk, you texture milk. <laughs> That's a coffee drink, though. Like, What's that? Uh, like uh, with uh, Cortados and you know, yeah. Fat Whites, whatever, It's you're, you're adding coffees, you know, the, the baseline ingredient, and then you're adding milk to, to make it into a drink. But then uh, I think uh, what is more interesting, especially for me, is the actual coffee like when you're cupping it for instance or, or you know having a filter coffee 
uh, you're just tasting the the coffee and what's you know inherent in that and the, that's the result of the process and well this is interesting that, because you know. like outside of the industry everybody's kind of into espresso drinks that's kind of you know you've got the You've got the equipment. It's a there's a boiler. It's all really involved and expensive and sexy. Within coffee, espresso's fine. Like a good espresso's nice. A good cappuccino is indulged in the way you would like have a stack of pancakes and, and bacon. You know, it's a thing you do every once in a while. It's not a thing you do every day if you're in coffee. They're obsessed with filter coffee because it's a much more pure expression, and they want to taste that. So I think that's interesting. Like the public is into lattes and cappuccinos, but if you were to go to a person in the industry. They're going to ask for a filter coffee, a drip coffee, um, you know, uh, an AeroPress or something like that. They're you know, because I, I, from Lars's point of view, too, it, it's the illustrative points, the things that you can see. And it seems like such a almost boring baseline thing to, you know, show the differences between that baseline coffee. How, as an illustrator, do you, uh, um, you know, show that diversity? Specificity. Uh, I got to specify and, and really, you know, be accurate with things. It's not just random it's not just it's something very specific that happens as part of a pro like a very 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 demanding process and it's it's very complex we don't really understand all of it yet either uh, you know um so how can i build it on uh, help build on that and kind of reform the i guess the aesthetic for specialty coffee make it more direct uh and you know, just really following people like Tim Wendelboe when he's uh, really working with the producers to help them make better coffee. Um, you know, you don't really see that in a lot of you know, coffee-related stuff. Yeah, well, when you say the industry, that's like the third wave industry, which yeah. is much smaller than the capital I industry. <laughs> Yeah, but the, the, the third wave, so the industry term, the industry the industry term is specialty coffee, that's what it's actually called, and that's and that's a term that was kind of introduced in, I think, the 80s. Um, I should know that date, actually. Um, so specialty coffee is bigger than you'd think. Um, specialty coffee in the U.S. is like a $15 billion industry between 12 and $15 billion. So that's, that's the upscale stuff. That's not the can of coffee in the supermarket. You know, so it's... Is that know, Starbucks as well? It does include Starbucks, yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. But that's it's bigger than Hollywood. You know, Hollywood's <laughs> like an eight billion dollar industry. So, so people are spending more money on snobby coffee than they are Hollywood. Although I guess you know Hollywood is kind of a punching bag right now. It's not like it's <laughs> it's doing that well. Um, but it's 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 surprising how many people are participating in this and how many people are curious. Um, and it's still kind of treated like a fringe thing or a niche thing when when it's actually just this enormous, enormous marketplace. Well, I mean, once you publish your book, they'll just have to adapt it into Coffee the Movie. Yeah. Coffee the movie. <laughs> well, we're going to take a quick break and then actually come back uh, for a little lunch dinner ex session of the food scene on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. We'll be right back. White Oak Pastures is the only farm in the United States that has its own USDA-inspected red meat abattoir or slaughterhouse and its own USDA-inspected poultry abattoir or slaughterhouse. 
We partner with Whole Foods to deliver our high-quality meat and poultry from Miami, Florida, all the way to Princeton, New Jersey. One family, one farm, five generations, 145 years. A full circle return to sustainable land stewardship and humane animal stockmanship. For more information, please visit our website, whiteoakpastures.com. HeritageRadioNetwork.org is a member-supported nonprofit organization. If you like what you're listening to, go to our website and click that donate button. Become a member and get special discounts, invites, VIP treatment, t-shirts, and more. Support us in our mission to bring you the freshest food content in the nation. Hey, and welcome back to the food scene on HeritageRadioNetwork.org, a special edition of the Food Book Fair. 2013, Elizabeth Thacker-Jones, the founder, here. And the next session, we'll move into, actually, this is perfect for my show, The Intersections of Food and Art, is Amelia Martin, chef owner, The Smile. Hi. How's it going? Good. Um, first of all, I don't know why I am enamored by any place that you have to walk down the stairs to, but I am. <laughs> so you won me at that on the onset. But you come from a very interesting background uh, of art collectors themselves. Can yes. you tell me... Uh, what you were surrounded by as a youth? Well, both of my parents are painters, and my sister became an art dealer, so she opened a gallery right out of college, and I sort of around that. That was Rivington Arms, right? Yes. Oh, I used to love Arms. that place. Yes, me too. It's not. It's no longer. No, she closed it maybe three years ago, hmm. so it's a, a memory now. A fond, a fond, fond A very memory. fond memory. <laughs> a formative memory. But what, what kind of art? Was it all 2D? Was it sculptural? Was it photographs? Uh, that she showed or that I grew up that around? That you grew up around. Um, well, I mean, you know, a mix. I mean, my parents were painters, abstract painters, so that was like a big part of my life. But, you know, all their friends were different kinds of artists. It was just a very natural thing. And then growing up in the West Village, too, obviously, you were surrounded by that art, but there was also a good food scene there. Yes. I, I mean, I think I feel like when you're growing up, you don't notice how lucky you are to be around good food until, you know, later you realize other people didn't have that. Yeah. You know. But so. what did you grow up eating and engaging yourself with? Well, my mom was an amazing cook, and she was really, she was really into traveling. She, um, she she would make like Moroccan food and a lot of Greek food, Thai food, so she was really a big influence for me um, now, I guess. Yeah. You, you know what I also found interesting is, you know, you constantly were at the edge of figuring out what you wanted to do. Was it art? Was it food? And when did that amalgamation happen? You went to school for design. You, you interned at a magazine. Yeah. I studied art history in college, and it was... Uh, I think, you know, a lot of people now are figuring out what they want to do a little bit later than used to be the norm. Um, and I guess I was just always surrounded by the art world and kind of fell into that thing 
naturally, but I didn't really want to be an artist. I didn't really want to do anything like that. Can you draw? Can you illustrate? I... No. (laughs) I mean, I used to. I used to draw growing up, but no. So... Sorry to mention her name if, if, if you find it off-putting, but Rachel Ray. I actually like Rachel Ray. Me too. Me too. <laughs> and I really would love her on the station on the show because I think <laughs> she's kind of curated herself and what she does in such a, you know, obviously huge way now, but really smart way as well. What did you learn from being there about both food and design and art and magazine? Well, yeah, I worked at her magazine. I was an intern, like a very lowly intern when it when it first launched. Um and I think she is amazing. I think she is, like, the person who is bringing maybe this this wave of, like, food awareness to the most people. Like, because she's very approachable. She's very palatable for, for, like, so many people. Like, when I was there, I would read the fan mail that came for her. And it was overwhelming and also, like, really touching that people just relate to the way she cooks. And I think she's teaching people to cook in a healthier way. Yeah. No, agreed. And, you know, l- looking at the smile now, jumping ahead to where you are right now, how do you take some of those ideas that Rachel Ray had and pour those into your workplace? Um, I could never be Rachel Ray. <laughs> um, I, I mean, I try and make things as simple as they can be and be the best they can be. I think in, like, developing recipes for the restaurant or for my cookbook, you want something to be you know, the least amount of elements or I want something to be the least amount of elements and still be delicious and and work in the most like elemental way. I'm gonna interject here Please. too that Melia worked um closely with Jennifer Rubel, who I think maybe her work is a little bit more emblematic of, of what you're doing now and that it's very subtle. Um that there's, you know, purpose and there's a art influence in what you're doing but it's not it's it's um i mean i feel like your book modern mediterranean sort of took a leap to say like this is the kind of cuisine that you are most comfortable in perhaps um but that up until this point the smile has been more about you know just being seasonal being fresh being beautiful on the plate um would you say that's true yes um <laughs> i mean i think the the smile Unlike some places that are completely, like, seasonal or completely driven by experimenting with, like, market fresh food, which we do. But I I also really want it to be, like, a neighborhood staple, you know, where you can go and get that thing that that you love to have, like, you know, once a week or, you know, get the roast chicken that you just crave. So hopefully, I'm trying, hopefully people are feeling that way about the Mm -hmm. restaurant. And for the book... I think it's the same thing. I want it to be, like, you know, things that are easy that anyone can do and that just feel, like, part of your, your like, standard recipe fallback. Is Mediterranean part of your life? Did you grow up, you know, with, with lineage there, visiting there? I did. I um, My family has had a house in Greece since the 70s because, like I said, my mom loved to travel, and she went to this tiny island there, and... It was just really small, and she fell in love with it, and then she kept going back, and she ended up getting a house there. So I was lucky enough to grow up going to this place every summer and just having this really simple Greek island cooking as, like, a backbone of my What are those palette. ingredients? They really floral, oregano, feta cheeses? 
oregano, definitely a lot of dried oregano, but really great tomatoes, um, you know, cucumbers, fresh fish, grilled fish, lemons, just like very simple, um, clean flavors. Yeah, I mean, I know there are Greek kind of enclaves in New York and Astoria. Um, why hasn't been as prevalent as it, you know, I think it should be here in New York? I think Greek food is one of those things that it's hard to do, like, the fancy version of Greek food. I think people try, and there are some good places like that, but it, it never gets elevated to that, like, fine dining thing. Um, but I love the food in Astoria. My husband's actually from Astoria, so it's come full circle that I go there all the time, and it's, like, my New York. Can Greek I give a quick shout-out to your husband? Because yeah. I actually do watch or have watched all his programming along the way. Oh, wow. And I'm a big supporter of Kid America. Oh, cool. Yes, Excellent. Kid America. Yeah. <laughs> I don't call him that at home. No, no. <laughs> just Kid, for short. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> but the the modern aspect of Mediterranean, how are you modernizing, uh, uh, you know, old Mediterranean cookbooks? Well, I had wanted to call it Manhattan Mediterranean at first, because to me it's like my New York version of Mediterranean cooking. So we're like, you know, New York local seasonal ingredients. Um, but... The, the modern version is really just, like, sort of how I have filtered the different Mediterranean food I've had. So it's not, like, you know, classic, hardcore, Greek specialty cooking. So if that's what you want, it's not that. It's more like one woman's version of cooking with those flavors. Yeah. You know, I, going back to Jennifer Rubel... Um, which Elizabeth obviously knows. Well, both of us worked for Jennifer. Yeah, yeah. yeah. We were but I mean, talking about simple, straightforward, um, Jennifer as well, emblematic or iconic things like you define something as a flavor or as you know some kind of key to the rest of whatever project you are doing. Um, do you feel like your food is similar in that fashion? You know, tomato, oregano, olive oil. Yeah, definitely. I definitely um, stole a lot of good ideas from Jennifer. <laughs> It's good. good that I worked we for her. We all did. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, I think it, you start with, like, a very basic thing that you're you're attracted to, like a, a certain kind of, like, really bright lemon flavor, and then you go from there. That, that There's just usually one thing that's simple that drives a recipe. So, I mean, aside from building a menu through those flavor profiles, how do you build a book like that? Well, the fun thing about a book, which I'm sure you know, is that it's really visual, and I got to like finally work with um something that was that I've always loved like a really aesthetic representation of of what I do and I think um that's always important in a restaurant your presentation or at home just like the colors and the dishes that you use and everything so it was like I could bring all that to to some like finite object that I could share with the world let's talk about that art direction I mean what what was the flair I I have never been to Greece but I feel like I've been transported by going into Greek restaurants and seeing the tile or you know uh, certain patterns yeah well I used a lot of uh, old photos of growing up um, summers in Greece but then the actual presentation of food is less like Greek restaurant you know bougainvillea and I don't know like blue and white um, more just stuff that I collect at home. I do a lot of collecting of antiques and like weird little ephemera and I don't know, kind of more poppy stuff. So I worked that into the book. Yeah. You know, um, Malia is part of the Thursday tasting, you know, uh, 
opening yes. party for the food the book fair, nights. which I am super psyched about. And it feels like a lot of people on that list are of a similar vein, you know, a hmm. reinterpretation, a reintroduction of something. Can you tell me who else was sure. on that list? Yeah, yeah. Um, well, Nancy Hashisu, um, her book is called um, Japanese Farm Food. And I would say she definitely falls into that category. Um, a woman named Ellen Zakos, whose book is called um, Backyard Foraging. Um, Lauren Chun, who wrote the Chim- Kimchi Cookbook. And um, what else? Matthew Weingarten. Yes, Matthew Weingarten, um, who uh, co-authored um, the Preserved Wild Foods with Raquel Pizel. Well, it's going to yeah. be fascinating. What are you making for that Thursday night? I'm actually making a beet and watermelon radish salad with mozzarella and basil and like a citrus dressing. It's awesome. Which it- sounds so good. Yeah. <laughs> and it's really funny because I um, ran into Melia at the Cherry Bomb party maybe two weeks ago. And we we're chatting about her recipe. And um, I said, you know, your recipe sounds really good. I'm so excited. And But, you know, watermelon isn't actually in season. Um, where are you going to get your watermelon? She was just being polite. She thought it sounded terrible. <laughs> <laughs> Why are you making beet and watermelon? But it's actually watermelon radish. Watermelon which radish. Is, gotcha. which just a was, beautiful radish. Was, like yeah, watermelon. one of my interns read it as because it was handwritten. Right. I thought you were going to fight back and be like, watermelon's fresh somewhere. It's like, <laughs> yeah. you know, it's 5 o'clock somewhere, beer yeah. o'clock somewhere. No. Yeah. no. <laughs> I'm saving that for the summer. So. Gotcha. Yeah. gotcha. Um, you know, this, this new breed of cookbooks um, from you know, a younger generation that's modernizing something old, how, what do you look back to? What other cookbooks, what other you know, information do you draw from? Well, I have... Um a couple favorite cookbooks. I think Paula Wolfert is like the standard Moroccan cookbook that I grew up with. That my mom actually took classes with her, I think in the eighties. And that was like the basis for all my, you know, family dinners growing up. So I always had that. And that's like a really, you know, like an interpretation of Moroccan cooking. That's very classic. And I also really like Diana Henry. She, um, she has a book called crazy water pickled lemons that, has been like a big inspiration for me and no no i love actually i love the visual aspect of that book that the photographer (laughs) is jason lowe and the reciprocity failure that's photo geeky stuff but (laughs) no it is it's kind of an amazing book um because it showed again something so simple in like a completely different aesthetic light on top of that it's more it's almost like food journalism that cookbook because she really like traveled around like different I mean, it's like Moroccan, Middle Eastern, I don't know, Israeli a bit. And I, th- I think it's like has that reporter's eye for food. So yeah. what are you hoping to do with this book? Are you trying to make people come to the smile, go to Greece, both? Both. Um, I don't know. I just want people to, like, enjoy it at home just to, to have these recipes become part of their daily life just the way I took from Diana Henry's book. And there's things that are like just part of my life now that I love. I hope that someone does that with this book and comes to the smile. Yeah. Tries it there too. Certainly. You know, it's funny, Christoph, who's going to be on next, he and I were talking on a train ride over about, you know, uh, um, 
how do you separate or how do you combine a restaurant book versus a personal book? And sometimes, you know, the, the restaurant book is personal and people will cook it at home and then come to the restaurant to see how they did. Um, how, how did you do that, you know, growing up cooking from cookbooks? Um, how, like, did you cook recipes and then go to restaurants or did you have any kind of contrast compare? Yeah, well, I think restaurant cookbooks, a lot of times they can be really difficult because the way you cook in a restaurant is not the way you cook at home. You don't have like prep cooks, you don't prep in the same way. Um, so a restaurant cookbook can really be something that you just use like sparingly to remind you of, of the dish that you like at the restaurant. But I think the food at the smile is more like home cooked food or that's what I've tried to do. So it was very natural to do the cookbook for home cooks because it, um, it doesn't have that like super plated, super layered restaurant feel to it. It's almost a more natural fit for yeah. the home cook than, than a restaurant. So when did you guys cross over when you were for Jennifer? I would, we, it's funny cause we were both her assistant. So I would come to find like a file with Melia's name on it. I was like the ghost <laughs> in the office uh, from before. Yeah. yeah. And finally I asked like, who's Melia? <laughs> and then we went to lunch with the smile. Gotcha. Yeah. Melia. But I mean, so let's talk about eating with Jennifer. What kind of meals would you have? Would it be these big constructed things or these very simple home style? She would make these amazing simple lunches for me when I was there because she would just take whatever was in the fridge or we'd been testing recipes for Domino where she used to write for it and she would make like a really simple salad with like something amazing drizzled on top. It was very simple but perfect. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) Fully sort of, I mean, her, her like olive oils. Like, she'd always have, like, three or four that she sort of meticulously, like, cycle, depending on what she was making. And she had, like, she's, she has, you know, a, a real sort of passion for things like salt and honey and um, vinegar, like, re- just really the basics. And she, her, her refrigerator is always, like, completely immaculate. Everything is, has its place. Not and like my refrigerator. Yeah, my refrigerator <laughs> has like ten jars of olives, and everything's rotting. And yeah, salsa, salsa jars. <laughs> <laughs> but you know, we I keep on coming back to this idea of you say meticulous, but I think curated, um, and such simple, basic things like olive oil, salt, honey. Um, they come from a trusted person or a trusted network, and you know it takes years to get to that point. It's not like you're going to walk into a specialty shop and be able to pick the best. Uh, you know, most wonderful thing the first time you pick it out. So you learn from these life experiences, and it may seem simple, but it's taking years of, you know, process of elimination almost in my mind. That's the fun part about cooking. You get to try 10 different olive oils over the course of however many years and find out what you love. I said, and which are your favorite basics, your staples right now? Which brands? Yeah. I don't know. I mean, I actually, one of the cooks at This Mile, his family has an olive oil farm i guess they do olives as well and he just brought me some recently that they don't sell here and it was like the most amazing thing i've ever tasted so it completely changed the way i think about olive oil yeah so there's always something new out there yeah and yeah it's such it's not a stunted community at all i mean we just heard about coffee and how expansive and how much we don't know and you know with everything with each cuisine with 
each basic ingredient. It's that same way. So I'm excited to see your book, eat your food, and get this food book fair on the road. Anything to add, Elizabeth? I don't think so. I think we'll, you'll have to see what happens on Thursday. That's I'm more, excited. <laughs> more to come. More to come. We're going to take another quick break and then talk to Christoph Ile. Ile? Manila. Hilla. Hilla. Rhymes with Manila. That's it. I knew I wrote Manila on there. Or and Thrilla. I forgot about what it meant. Um, and get a little fiery about food and labor. Exactamundo. And you've been listening to The Food Scene on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. We'll be right back. Like what you hear so far? Support the network and become a member. Membership helps us bring you the best food radio in the world and gives you access to thousands of dollars in discounts at the sustainably-minded businesses that support us. To become a member, visit HeritageRadioNetwork.org today. Welcome back to the food scene on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. Again, food book fair special 2013. Get your tickets now. A whole bunch of amazing events ranging from opening night, coffee crawl, and a fiery debate with Christoph. Hello, everybody. So, food and labor. Um, the author, Elizabeth, who is on that panel is Saru, and you can pronounce her last name for me. Jere Yaman. Much better than I would have done. Um, is doing a book about an exploration, or wrote a book about an exploration, what's behind the kitchen doors and the labor industry, the disputes there with, uh, you know, a living wage. Now, you own, operate, Northern Spy Food Co. in the East Village. Um, yes. Which is an amazing, amazing place if you haven't gone and not blown smoke up your ass. See, I cursed. <laughs> I've been trying to work it in some way. But, you know, obviously staffing a restaurant is something different than feeding your patrons. Uh, what is it like to be a manager, to have that kind of head in the industry? It's an extraordinary challenge. It's, um, it is the biggest challenge that uh, we have day-to-day as a restaurant, and that I think probably any restaurant has. When you start, when you decide to get into the restaurant business, I don't know if you had the same experience, but... You really think a lot of things about, you know, you spend a lot of time thinking about menus and food cost and location and rent. Uh, Rent is a really big one. Uh, Rent, you know, unless you make a terrible decision, ends up being not that big of a deal. Um, What is a big deal day-to-day is labor. It's hiring people, uh, trying to be, you know, more or less compliant with important 
uh, human resources issues, um, paying people on time, making payroll. Uh, it's it's by it's it's far and away the biggest concern that you have. Um, it occupies the most of your time. Uh, first of all, restaurant work is not like clerical work or office work where if somebody doesn't show up in an office, most of the time the things that happen can be deferred or can be sort of spread out amongst people and because because of the workflow, you know, the organization of, of what an office does. Uh, the restaurant is like a little military operation. You know, the guy on like the gun, you got the guy on the wheel, you got the guy on like the back, you know, the navigator. If one person doesn't show up, it's much harder to make the ship move. And that is like that that constant sort of one step away from crisis mode uh, that a lot of restaurants live in. And as you get bigger, it ceases to be as big of a deal because, you know, if you have 10 prep cooks and one doesn't show up, it's not that big of a deal. We have one prep cook every day. If that guy, you know, bails on us or we don't treat him right or whatever it is, um, we are in a world of hurt. So, Elizabeth, the majority of the books at the Food Book Fair, I would say um – Air towards food itself, air towards cooking technique. The culture side, yeah. Yeah. Um, how important is a topic like this in the larger discussion of the fair? Extremely important. I mean, I think the fair tries to live in that area where the the culture side and the other side, the system side, the politics, the sociology, the history, where they all come together. So um, we have probably you know fifty plus actual books that are about these topics um, in addition to several panels with participants that are talking about these topics from um, the sort of new agrarian movement to um, food's relationship to design um, it's and this issue is something I'm I feel personally very passionate about um, my actually, my great grandfather was the first to have um, the eight-hour workday in his factory at the turn of the century, and um, it's sort of in my family's blood. <laughs> my my dad is is named um, for him, and my brother is as well, and and um, so is my younger brother. So. Um, the the issue of labor is something that when we are talking about food, it's not it's not necessarily fun. It can be heavy. It can be um, it, it can sort of create a divide and a and an awkward pause in the room. Um, so this is a panel that has actually been uh, people are very excited about it. I think because it's not always talked about in the same same breath as you know. Here's this lovely cooking demo we're doing. Yeah. Well, I mean, let's, let's talk about lifestyle because we just talked to Amelia about Mediterranean and projecting some kind of, you know, um, ambiance around food, around cooking. Um, to be able to to be able to afford that in a restaurant, you know, to mm-hmm. have people have wages and produce the kind of food that you're producing um, is, is a completely different, you know, uh, feeling. It's a, you're projecting something else. Uh, it must be a hard thing to maintain that and the quality of food at the same time. It requires um, enlisting everybody really in the same in the same mission, and you create systems to sort of uh, protect yourself in case you know a couple of people aren't really on that mission. And that is again part of this the staffing issue of uh, you're constantly 
you know, in the restaurant, the restaurant industry is has extreme, extremely high turnover. I think people who work in uh, offices and you know re- what we call regular jobs are you know always shocked. I think at the turnover. I mean, you can have somebody for six months, three months, you know, maybe a year if you're lucky, before they move on. Um, and that is, of course, partly related to the wage issue, but it's also there is a naturally peripatetic tendency in cooks to want to explore, find new things, build their resume you know, and, and go on to the next thing. Um, so you're always sort of like in this mode of like, Hey guys, we all believe in this, right? Like we're here together, right? We're doing something good. And you know, most of the time it works and sometimes it doesn't. And, and you can tell, you know, in, in food media, like you can tell when somebody is pointing out something that wasn't quite right in a restaurant and you think, yeah, the guys were probably just not into it. You know, they were just, they're like, screw this. Yeah. I want to, I want to go home. So, I mean, how do you find, how do you foster a crew like that? Because, you know, it feels very, uh, well, these days people are more prevalent to open up their own thing. You know, say, I'm going to be here for a year and then I'm going to do my own thing rather than invest themselves in someone else's business. Well, it's, I mean, A, it's really expensive to do your own thing and it's, it's extraordinarily daunting and the re- and I can attest that the returns are, are, are meager. Um, so you do have them for a while in their life and, uh, and you offer the best that you can. You know, in lieu of, of extraordinary wages, you know, I think we have at our place a really decent work environment. Uh, we, you know, everybody gets paid uh, over time as they should. Um, and, you know, you try and take care of people like if they have issues, you know, like I've I bailed a guy out of jail once, you know, like I've done that sort of stuff. Um, and, you know, that stuff happens and it's the best you can do because you're kind of you're all there 50 hours a week together. So they're family your family um it's highly imperfect family um and you do what you can um so i mean in this panel i'm excited to be part of it because i'm totally not a labor expert but i've sort of fashioned myself into a little bit of one through research and just the experience for you know three and a half years through northern spy and then you know previous experiences in san francisco you know cutting a lot of checks for people hiring a lot of people firing a couple of people um, dealing with human resources stuff on you know on the very much ground level, I think that there are there are two conversations that are going to happen, and hopefully we can merge them in this panel, which is that there's sort of like a progressive there's a progressive politics um, that is being sort of leveled at the cooking in, at the food industry, and then there's sort of like the on the ground experience of like okay how do we like how do we actualize that because uh, it's like everything else it's very messy and a lot of it has to do with Really big, really big stuff. Yeah. So, I mean, it's not something you can institute when opening a restaurant. It's something that happens down the road once you... How you mean, like, like, like really developing good sort of labor practices? Yeah. You can. You can out of the gates if you're really, really sharp. I think as you get bigger, you know, you're like a, you look at like a Mark Murphy type operation. Um, you know, ben, uh, Benchmark is his company, I think, right? Benchmark. I mean, they're so big now. He's like invested so much in this human resources structure that he actually consults, you know, advises people on it. And has developed such expertise that probably out of the gates, he does probably like 90% of things correctly. The rest of us are scrambling to figure out how to get Con Ed just to show up to turn on your damn gas so that you can get your health inspection so that you can open your doors because you're like eating it on rent every month that you're not open. And so really, human resources issues are like, you know, five steps behind that. Like you're just trying to open your doors and then, you know, you're trying to figure out how to like, uh, you know, get enough cash flow that you can make payroll every week. And then... And then by the time, you know, you move into it, you're so swamped with operations that, you know, a a year goes by before you realize that, oh, my God, I've been, like, doing this really illegal thing. (laughs) (laughs) You won't say what that is on air. No. But um, 
you know, it, it's interesting to see this conversation sandwich in between, you know, the coffee crawl and some other food things that it is such a, you know, intertwined piece of restaurant, of food, uh, of cookbooks. Um, how many books kind of have both things going on at the same time? Hmm. Well, there are lots of books that will address issues um, that are not focused on this is how to cook or this is my food story or this is my, you know, um, memoir. Um, but let's say are more about um, politics or, or diet, actually, um, and have recipes within. Um, I would say a lot of the books that we have that are like Saru's book um, or like Marion Nestle's book or like Wendell Berry or Joel Salatin um, are more sort of in the, in, in academia um, is, is really where they thrive. So, you know, they don't tend to have recipes um, and you're sort of using food and food systems as a lens to talk about other topics. So um, there are lots of books. I mean, there are lots of books that, that we have to say, oh, you know, we're not going to carry that because, um, you know, it's like four or five years old. Uh, so we find there are more books coming out. I mean, every year, you know, within the next week, we have a book um, by, uh, well, last week, um, Michael Pollan's latest book came out about cooking, but it, I don't believe it has recipes. And then, um, does it? It does have four recipes. <laughs> Thank you, Oliver, fact-checking. Um, and then we have Mark Bittman's book coming out in a couple of days called Vegan Before Six, which is definitely recipe-filled. Um, but re Mark Bittman, you know, he does sort of has one foot in both um, both sort of worlds, in, in the systems world and, and in the, you know, straight up, this is how you cook world so christoph we talked about yeah. you know maybe you someday doing a cookbook yes where does it sit or is there so much going on in your head about trying to put you know both the political economic you know food restaurant thing forwards that it, it seems ominous like where does it sit sort of in like what would what would that book look like what yeah. would it smell like all that sort of I, I i was thinking i think it might be sort of like oh you know oh the mistakes i've made <laughs> Um, it would be, you know, I think it would be sort of like a biography of a, of a restaurant, I think, and where things stand now. Uh, we did so many things backwards and uh, incorrectly, and we still scraped by and managed to make it. I mean, it's got a DIY element, the restaurant, that is both admirable and laughable at the same time, I think. And, um, and if I was ever to do it again, I would uh, reduce the DIY and more DIT, I think, do it together. Um, and... So it'd be something like a biography of like how you get to this place, like how like how does a place look like this after three years? Like you know, who got us there? Uh, you know, it would have like a it would definitely have like appendices in the back of like don't do this, don't do that, incorrect procedure, um, you know, all these things. That would be very entertaining, I think. For it would be sort of like it, it would have like an insidery element where people could like other restaurateurs could open it and say, ha. Yeah. Again, it's the process of elimination idea. Of, right. You know, having someone who is trusted, who's gone through that already, and yeah. not having to go through that. Ex I think that's a. a, a I think that would be a great yourself. niche in in restaurant cookbooks. Is sort of like, um, you know, have this element of like, 
you know, sharing the things that we did wrong and the things that we wish we had chosen differently. So let's talk about Journey, not the band, but, Mm -hmm. you know, uh, these books that actually are about, you know, arriving somewhere or coming from some place. Because I I feel like the Food Book Fair really changed this year in that aspect, that it's not just about this book is out right now, but this book has come so far or meant so much to somebody, uh, especially like Food and Conflict. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, that... That's been actually a really interesting um, panel to put together because in the last uh, couple of months, you have um, the Gaza cookbook that came out. Um, we re- were really hoping that they could come and participate, um, but they're traveling with their book. Um, and then you have you know Joan Nathan on that panel, who um, is an incredible force. She's been also in both sides of that the conversation um, for a very long time um, and a woman who's working on a cookbook about um, Cuban food um, Anna Sofia Palaz who, whose book will be coming out um, in a couple months and uh, we just added Sarah Jenkins whose mother wrote the Gaza cookbook <laughs> um, who will be on that panel um, and has a very interesting backstory and um, it's yeah i mean i think that is that's a really good e- example of how um we communicate through our love of food and and through um sort of connecting with with cultures that are sometimes it, it's difficult to talk about them um or you know through through traveling people experience um a side of a place and and develop a a taste for a place um, through the lens of, of food, and I think you could, it's not just food that, that you're experiencing that um, necessarily, but um, we're, we're writing more books about it, so it definitely means something. So, not not to cut you off, Christoph, but the Food Book Fair, well, first of all, come see Christoph. He has so much yeah, more to say on this topic. <laughs> Sparks come see everybody who's been on the show. I mean, come support the Food Book Fair, yeah. because again, Everything that we've discussed, from single subject to you know personal stories to labor disputes, they're all going to be there. It's not just you know that trailer that comes up to your school and you buy a book and you go home. There's interaction. There's a community there that really wants to talk about these policies, these systems, the future of food in so many different ways. Yeah, and it's I mean, look at Christoph's Twitter feed, for example. <laughs> it's very active and <laughs> and, and well. Um, well versed in in that space, you know, putting out content in in a different way, and we're we're really interested as a festival to explore all these different avenues, um, you know, as as a platform, um, not just as as four days um, in Williamsburg. So definitely come out. Um, I want to say one more thing too that's interesting about Christoph's panel is uh, Evelyn Kim. Is, oh my God. is on the panel. It's gonna be, oh. She is more than interesting. Is, I don't even yeah. have the words to formulate <laughs> what what kind of energy she has. Yeah, she has a lot of energy. She's she's actually coming um, from from Copenhagen. She came last year as well. Um, she's she's happens to be working from there, but you wouldn't really know from her social media presence. Um, she also recently wrote a piece about labor issues at the restaurant um, Noma, 
which has a lot of there's a lot of buzz around this restaurant um, for for you know its cuisine, for its book, for its celebrity chef, for its um, foraging and you know attention, but also attention to labor issues. They're they're really they have really um, admirable and um, and well versed practices in that space. They provide health insurance for their employees. Um, Evelyn wrote a piece that was basically. Uh, in a response to um, a, Noma having an uh, issue with a, a virus. No virus outbreak, yes, yeah. Yeah, an outbreak um, that really, really brought them a lot of negative attention. Um, and so that's sort of another another aspect that I, we would like to... Evelyn alone is worth the price of entry. Right, yeah. yes, <laughs> this is true, this is true. So, I mean, aside from going to panels, uh, listening to what people have to say, uh, interacting with after, there are also interactive forums you can go to foodie articles, which again, like last year, is tons of yeah. dash articles. Which I couldn't say that word for a year um, when we came up with it, and now I've just owned it. You got it. And then other other people are using it in like other media outlets, which is really awesome because yeah. that's what it is. There are dinners, one at Parish Hall, based on a, a book, My Side of the Mountain, which as a New Yorker. Uh, growing up in this school system, I read many a times um, and should be absolutely awesome. Uh, but Food and Enterprise, can you tell me a little bit about that and how people can come? And Yeah, Food and Enterprise is Sunday, um, May 5th. And that we just went a little crazy wild. Like, okay, let's, let's explore this entrepreneurship space. There are all these people um, making food and um, selling it in markets. There's, you know, a long history of, of local food in, um, in our food shed, um, you know, not just the green market that we have in Union Square, but, you know, 40 plus farmers markets and growing. Um, so how do we sort of connect the dots between the producers and the entrepreneurs? Um, we partnered with a nonprofit called Slow Money NYC, which is, um, Basically, that's what their role is. They bring together um, investors and people who um, want to be able to bring high-quality, um, local, sustainable food and resources into their businesses. And we have about um, 30 resources that we'll, we'll be essentially tabling um, for that whole day. Uh, from you know the usual su- suspects that are organizing CSAs, um, you know Zipcar, <laughs> this a resource, and then um, you have you know a lot of consultancies groups um, like IOB, um, the Axion Group, a lot of like smaller um, groups that are are funding um, projects even outside of the U.S. Um, so it should be a really awesome day, and it's ending with a pitch competition. We have seven entrepreneurs working on projects that are, you know, either engaging with technology to um, build the the local food infrastructure. Um, we have a drink company, um, some other really interesting startup ideas that will they'll all be presenting, sort of Shark Tank style. Um, for five minutes, and then we have a group of judges who will then um, decide who gets the loot. Um, the loot being uh, some some interesting uh, like 
time with like a, an hour with an expert um, in their field, whether, whether it be like a, someone who can help you write a business plan, a you know, design strategist, uh, someone at good food jobs, like certain people like that. So you have a, a new network that you'll walk away with. It's pretty cool. Yeah, um, it's more than pretty cool, and I don't know how you're just <laughs> completely exhausted. Uh, so a big congratulations to you again for putting on oh, the thank Food Book you. Fair. Go to foodbookfair.com. There are still tickets available. And two quick things I'd like to say that we have two day passes to give away. Email us at info at heritageradionetwork.org. First two to have free day pass uh, Food Book Fair in the you know, subject line. We'll get to come and experience whatever they want at the Food Book Fair. And Thursday night. The opening party is actually also a fundraiser for Veggie Island. Um, a lot of us here remember Sandy, uh, the Superstorm, which was only about six months ago, and still has you know gravely affected a lot of people out in Rockaway. And you know that that's such a great thing that you're doing that for that organization and trying to get them you know up and running again. So yeah. I applaud that. Thank you. They are you know they're running on a very small scale right now. Um, PS One built. A dome out there um, which has been like a community hub for um, all sorts of groups that are are rebuilding that space and then they'll open in the, their original space in the middle of May um, but they still need a lot of electrical and plumbing work done in the next couple of weeks so we're, we're really glad that we're able to help them out cool. we've already raised $5,000 for them awesome so. well come see us all at the food book fair Lars Oliver, Amelia, Christoph. Yeah, come meet this Motley crew. Yeah, should <laughs> be a blast. Be a crazy and here's to 2014 as well. Yeah. Come support this event so it can happen again, again, and again until... My prediction is that like in 20... What, 2020? People are going to be saying, were you at Food Book Fair 2013? Yeah. <laughs> this <laughs> is the one to be big. at, folks. It's going to be that big. <laughs> Excellent. Wow. You've been listening to the Food Scene on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. We hope to have you back here next Thursday at 3. Come to the Food Book Fair. Thanks for listening to this program on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. You can find all of our archived programs on our website or as podcasts in the iTunes store by searching Heritage Radio Network. You can like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at Heritage underscore Radio. You can email us questions at any time at info at heritageradionetwork.org. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization. To donate and become a member, visit our website today. Thanks for listening.